Welcome to another episode of Chefs and Guests on the Spoon Mob podcast. This week, I'm joined by Andy Smith, who is the owner and founder of Sobriety Shaken. He also runs the Columbus chapter of Ben's Friends. Both organizations aim to deal with alcoholism and alcohol addiction, as well as some other drug addictions uh, within the restaurant community at large. Obviously, a lot of people know that there's a lot of chefs that are sober now. You know, when they first start out, it's kind of this party hard atmosphere and everything like that. And that also goes to the rest of the staff, front of the house, bartenders, sommeliers, like all that stuff. So the restaurant scene, restaurant industry has always been a a ground for people encountering those issues, uh, just as any other, not to say that office workers or anything like that don't encounter issues like this, but it's pretty prominent in the restaurant industry. And Andy reached out through Instagram and uh, also through Chris Dillman, who we had on the podcast previously. So we connected through that. And I was trying to figure out the best time to have him on, like when would be a good time to have an episode about getting sober and the benefits of being sober and his kind of story and everything. When would be the best time to kind of release that? And I figured right before kind of we get into the holidays, you know, holidays are big uh, drinking time. You know, usually I think it's uh, the day before Thanksgiving is the biggest like bar day of the year, just because kids come home from college and stuff. So they see their friends from high school and and everybody kind of goes out and reminiscing and all that stuff too. So, and everybody usually has that day off or gets out of work early or something like that too. So it's a really big bar day. So I figured like before Thanksgiving, like that'd be a good time to just kind of put this out. You know, we're not trying to tell people, hey, you got to go get sober. You shouldn't have any alcohol whatsoever. It's if you feel that you maybe have too much alcohol or headed down kind of this path or can kind of see some reflections in yourself within Andy's story and and how he went through everything and, and eventually became sober you know, maybe that's, you know, something to reflect on and, and take a look at, you know, in your personal life and stuff like that. So not trying to tell anybody that they shouldn't drink or anything like that. You know, I'm a big champagne guy. So, but there are times where it's like, yeah, I mean, you just cool out and, you know, take a week or two off from just, you know, having any sort of alcohol and just kind of let your mind and your body reset and stuff like that too. So a bunch of different ways to go about it, but, you know, it's definitely an interesting episode. It's a little different than what we do, you know, just because Andy's not a chef, he's not a restaurant owner. You know, he loves restaurants. He spent his entire career in restaurants. He loves it. He will probably be in a restaurant until he dies, I would imagine. We just kind of talk about his whole story, how he got in all that stuff too, as well, and, and what he's aiming to do with sobriety shaken and the chapter of Ben's friends and everything too, as well. So you can follow him on Instagram at sober juggernaut. Uh, That is sober. And then juggernaut J U G G E R N A U T. You can find him on Instagram. Uh, If you have any questions or anything, ever want to reach out to him, you can also find him through the Ben's friends chapter too, as well. He runs that chapter here in Columbus. And we get into how he got involved with that organization, all that stuff too, as well. So really interesting episode. So without further delay, here is my conversation with Andy Smith of sobriety shaken. Thanks for reaching out, coming on the podcast. Appreciate it. This is going to be a little different than what we normally do, but I think it's super important. So definitely going to get into everything that you're doing now and how you got there. You have been working and still do work in the hospitality industry. So kind of want to start back at the beginning first, just for some background and everything. How did you first kind of get started working in restaurants, essentially? Well, first of all, thanks for letting me come on. I really appreciate it. I was I want to say 13, 14 years old, I had to go downtown to get a work permit because I wanted to get a job and pay for whatever a 13-year-old needs to pay for. I got a job at the Brown Derby on Morse Road on the north side of Columbus. I was a salad runner and a busboy. I actually rather enjoyed it. It was run by a a Greek family that were pretty interesting. Uh, it It was pretty wild. It was the first time I ever had blue cheese dressing. So I kind of fell in love with like different food and was kind of blown away by, um, what they were serving there, which even, I don't, I don't know how great it was even then, but, um, one night 
I want to say it was a holiday night. The dishwashers walked out. The manager, John, uh, pulled me aside and said, if you stay and wash dishes, I'll give you an extra 20 bucks. I got out of his pocket. And I, that was a huge deal. Huge deal. And uh, I stayed and washed dishes till about three in the morning. They fed me beers all night. All the pretty girls that worked there actually talked to me. And that was kind of it. <laughs> I, I staggered home at, you know, three in the morning. My parents didn't say a word. And like, I think I found what I want to do. Um, and then just sort of bounced around uh, Columbus a little bit. Did not go to co- try, try to go to college off and on um, as we do and uh, discovered that restaurants allowed you to drink the way you wanted for sure. Um, I had a little, a short gig at the DCSC base, which was out, I think up Hamilton road at the officer's club. I wanted to work at like a, like a restaurant where they wore ties. I remember that that was a big thing for me for some reason. And I worked at the cooker in Westerville on Cleveland Avenue, which is across the street from, it was across the street from a Cheddar's, which then became the, the infamous sirens of, um, uh, the Donald Trump stripper, uh, what her name is fame stormy daniels i think was her stormy daniels yes pretending like i have no idea who that is but she uh she put that place on the map but the cooker was a great job it was um you know like brat the the 90s kind of brass and ferns and meatloaf and uh hot roast and biscuits and all that kind of thing and just basically every job i've had if i hadn't got didn't get fired it just led to in my mind what was a better job and from there i went to jay alexander's uh, I was there for a long time. I was fired twice from there. I think I was the first person in their their history to be hired back, which was a, a part of my story, which, you know, is I was a, a drunken bartender, like a cliche of a drunken bartender kind of thing. But people really liked me. That <laughs> was kind of turned out to be a bit of a handicap because when I would get fired from places and I've been fired from some of the nicest restaurants in Columbus, Ohio, it was like the 15th time. Like I would have managers who, you know, are still friends say, look, I we don't fire you. Like we look stupid. You know, we, we gotta, you know, what, one of the big things that I try to address when I talk to people about how to handle or not handle uh, people in the restaurants um, who have an alcohol problem, which I've been on both sides of it. Cause I've been a general manager and been in that position is how that, how that affects the rest of the staff. You know, you get to watch this person get away with basically murder and nothing happens to him. And I, I ended up being that guy a couple of times. Do you want like my whole lineage? Yeah, sure. Go through it. Yeah. So from Jay Alexander's, I got fired and ended up at the Columbus Fish Market because it was close to where I live. The original Fish One, as they call it. Um, and the corporate office was actually in the basement at that time. This is a long time ago, back when Fish Market was a Cameron Mitchell restaurant. I'm trying to remember who mentioned that they worked there. It might have been Brett Fife. I'm not sure. Oh, yeah. Brett Fife. Yeah, I worked with him a little bit. I went back to uh, the Fish Market and Jay Alexander's two places I was fired from for being drunk after I got sober, which I'm sure there's some sort of amends psycho babble in there. Um, but I worked with Brett the second time around, uh, the corporate office was in the basement, which led to one of my, one of my favorite restaurant stories, which is there was a guy, everybody says they know the owner in a restaurant and a guy was trying to show off for his table. And he asked my friend, Chris, uh, if the owner was around and he said, no, and the guy kind of declared to the table, I, I know the guy that owns this place. He's a very good friend of mine, Carmine Marshall. And that turned Cameron Mitchell into Carmine Marshall for me for 20 years. And I've actually had, I've had the opportunity to tell Carmine that story, which, which he, he really likes because everybody wants, like my cousin's friend's brother went to high school with 
Cameron, you know, all that kind of stuff. But over the years, I mean, I worked at Burgundy Room and everybody knew Michael Reams. Everybody knew, you know, whoever, that kind of thing. Just kind of a running joke. But I, gosh, I ended up at a place called Clotta Irish Pub up at Polaris Parkway, which was interesting. Um, it's like if Disneyland opened an Irish bar. Um, but it was right. This will kind of date me a little bit, but it was right when the smoking ban was going into effect. And we were, and it was a great job. So we were super busy, really at the, at the time, really good beer selection. This is before the beer explosion of, you know, microbreweries or whatever you call them. I don't even know if you call them microbreweries anymore. Um, I think back then it was like CBC and Hosters. Like that was it. And I did work at Hosters for a second. Uh, Claude had this great beer selection, you know, stuff from around the world, but it was a smoking bar. We had this like million dollar um, inhalation system uh, set in for cigars. We sold cigars. And we watched this smoking van thing happen, but it happened like so slowly. We were Columbus on one side of Polaris. The other side was Orange Township, which is Delaware. So we went non-smoking, like I think almost like seven months before the other side of Polaris did. And like fucking overnight, our patrons just flocked across the street or to like a buddy of mine, Travis, who I drank with at a little bar called Cocktails up there, worked at a place called Caribbean Jerk this bullshit little fucking bar. And he's like, overnight, he started making like three, four, 500 bucks a night and would was totally fucking with me about it. So that led to a management gig at Hoggies, which was across the street. Um, I uh, was very hands-on with the staff, specifically two girls that worked there, which led to me kind of, let's say embarrassing myself a little bit after a night of drinking. And I just sort of walked out, like left my keys and, you know, said, I can't do this anymore. And that led to my foray into independent places because I went downtown. I did what I told everybody, you know, you put on a nice shirt, grab a pen and go hit the bricks. And I wandered into the press grill, which um, was at the time owned by the same people that own Club 185. I, I drank it there before, you know, um, the owner happened to be there. He said, why don't you run over to the club? They're looking for some people. And I got a job there and it was great. And it was the first time, it was the first time I worked in like a 2 a.m. bar. Like, you know, um, we could, we could kind of do whatever we wanted there. Um, I don't want to disparage any businesses that are still open by any stretch of the imagination, but it was, I was in charge. Let's just say that I became a manager pretty quick. And that's kind of like putting a monkey in charge of the zoo, to be honest with you. So that was, that was the job. Now, now, the one thing I didn't address as I was going through those jobs was I was progressively um, getting in a lot of trouble for driving offenses. Specifically, those were the big ones. My first arrest was, oh, God, I don't even think I was 21 yet. Actually, I showed up. I, I went to a local Catholic high school and um, I got really, really drunk before a basketball game. Um, I didn't play basketball. I played football and wrestled. But my buddy Joey and I drank Mad Dog in the parking lot. We were going to go and start a fight at St. Charles. And we were going to go start a riot. And we were going to, you know, show these, show this all boys school what's up. So I went to the game and I was at the urinal telling the person to my right, A, how fucked up I was. B, I was going to start a fucking fight. I was there to raise hell. The person on my left was a uniformed Columbus police officer, which that's, if that gives you any indication of the criminal mastermind you're working with, um, then that's, that's kind of how the whole thing started. And of course he grabbed me and was like, come on, idiot. So that led to an arrest. I went to mayor's court, yada, yada, whatever. But I progressively was getting in trouble. And, you know, when, when you get, 
when you start to get driving uh, offenses, especially, you know, multiple ones over the course of time, uh, they, they, the Franklin County Probation Department starts paying attention and they started sending me pretty much immediately to, to those meetings. I'm doing air quotes for the listeners, those meetings. Of course, I saw it as a punishment, like an absolute punishment. Like this is, um, you don't know any, you don't know shit about me. I'm a fucking bartender. I, you know, you don't know the money I'm making. You don't know shit about me, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but I would get in trouble every couple of years. The consequences started getting more, more severe. I never picked up a felony, but misdemeanors can kind of rack up time in um, the loveliest place on earth, which is Jackson Pike County Jail. I spent a little time there, which is the most miserable place on the planet. Um, but again, the thing about restaurants, like when I worked at Clada, I had to do, I want to say 10 days in Jackson Pike and they loved me so much. They're like, yeah, do whatever you got to do. We'll get your shifts covered. Actually, at that time, a guy who uh, the manager was pretty vocal with me, they wanted to fire. He was mad at me because he couldn't fire that guy because that guy had to cover my shit. <laughs> and of course, I drunkenly told him, I was like, hey, dude, you know, you were supposed to get fucking fired. <laughs> and then I had to go to jail for 10 days. But it was just like, no harm, no foul. If you show back up and uh, do a good job, then we'll kind of ignore all this other shit, which is, you know, I think it's changing pretty progressively in restaurants. But um, hopefully, hopefully from Club 185, things got pretty bad, actually. Um, if I wasn't drinking at work, I was drinking outside of work. And I was dating a girl at the time who never worked in a restaurant. And she was real sick of my shit. Like I would just turn my phone off. For like three days, you know, just disappear, that kind of shit. I showed up one time pretty, pretty low. And um, there's, there's, there's an awful big shocker in restaurants. There's a lot of cocaine in my story. And um, I'll never, you know, apologize that 12 traditional 12 step kind of frowns on it. Like if you're in an A meeting, talk about alcohol. If you're in a CA meeting, talk about cocaine. For me, they're synonymous. If I had a Bud Light right now, 20 minutes from now, I'd want cocaine. And also it was one of the things that before you know, the shit hit, really hit the fan. If it's five in the morning and I'm doing a uh, blow with a bunch of people I just met, it makes you talk, like talk and talk and talk and talk and talk about fucking nothing. But a lot of times what I found myself talking about was how much I hated cocaine and how much I hated my life and how much I hated where I was, even though I pretended like I didn't. Like I was just, all oh, these arrests are no big deal. And I got to go to those booking meetings and I would like fake the court slips and all that. It was a big fucking joke. Um, but at six in the morning over a plate of blow, it was like, I want to fucking kill myself. <laughs> this is crazy. So it was the first real moment of introspection, I think. And I can never, ever apologize for that. But anyway, she uh, said, you know, I, things are really bad. I've been looking around at rehab facilities for you. And this job offered me insurance. And she said something really smart. She said, you know, if you go to rehab, they can't fire you. And of course my God, 99% of my identity was being a bartender, being a restaurant guy. And the other 1% was being a drunken idiot, which I loved that identity, actually. Like, you know, people talk about you a lot. You know, you're the subject of conversation quite a bit. Um, so I, you know, very dramatically decided to go to rehab. And I went to Parkside here in Columbus for, I think it was nine days, eight or nine days. For the first time in my life, actually woke up. Because, you know, there were nights that I would tell people I had an issue. I had a problem. I would call my mom at three in the morning and say, you know, I'm an alcoholic. It's on this, on that. But the first time I woke up in rehab, finally, you know, a little coherent and actually kind of wanted to be there. That changed over the course of time. Like there, I learned the science of this stuff, the neuropathways and that kind of thing. Somehow I morphed that into restaurants were my problem. Like, you know, I can't obviously can't work in a bar. You know, that's that's the problem. I can't work at X, Y, Z. That's the problem. 
So when I got out, I sat down with the owner of um, the club, who's an, an intimidating guy, to say the least. And I just looked him in the eye and said, I can't work in your bar anymore because, you know, it's killing me or whatever. And I thought that was this huge step. So like, I'm good. And I got a job at a cell phone company. And um, I was actually fairly heartbroken that I couldn't work in restaurants anymore because I was really good at it. And I had a good time. And yes, it facilitated me living that life I wanted. But I also it afforded me a lot of opportunities, too. And I, I guess I, w- I wasn't thinking about that then, believe me, but I was just kind of bummed that I couldn't work in a restaurant. So I got a job at a cell phone company. And five months later, I was back in a squad car. Um, I had a sobriety date. I had a fake sponsor. Um, I was telling everybody willing to listen that, you know, you need to go to meetings. You need to do this. You need to do that. And I very distinctly remember a guy that I worked with because I was kind of dabbling in drinking. He said, hey, a bunch of us are going out tonight. Do you want to go out? And I said, no, I, I, I can't drink. It was like a day to day thing now. Like I'm sober one day. I'm not sober. And I said, I can't drink when I drink. Bad things happen. And a couple of nights later, I went out, swear to God, to a movie by myself and hand to God, I was going to go in a bar for one drink and restaurants. You know, the the girl working knew some people I knew from Mitchell's. Um, she bought me a shot. I bought her a shot. Her friend showed up. Uh, next thing I know, I'm getting chased by the police down North Broadway and because uh, I lived in Clintonville. And the arresting officer didn't care that I'd been sober for five months because I think I told him about 100 times. Uh, it, it didn't it didn't end well. So I woke up in jail over the course of being court ordered to those meetings. I heard things that I didn't want to make sense. You know, things like it's not the last drink that fucks you up. It's the first one. And I like to say I heard that at my first meetings. It's a better story. Um, or I heard a guy thank the Franklin County Probation Department for sending him to uh, the meetings. And I thought that was crazy at the time. But I woke up in Jackson Pike and thought I thought I'd really tried. Like that was my version. Like I love restaurants. Like, you know what? What the fuck else do you want me to do? And those little things I'd heard over the course of time in the meetings kind of clicked into my head. And it's funny, too, over the course of time, this part of my story's changed because at first it was this shining light came down and, you know, my higher power granted me the wisdom to know the difference and all that stuff. But it was more like like those people like they're they're the, Those are the people that are going to save me. Like, fuck it. I'll give it a shot. It was either that or I'm killing myself like, like point blank. Um, I'd never tried to kill myself before, but I knew I could Google it. And probably the garage thing with the car was going to work. And then the next thought was my mom at my funeral. And that wasn't that didn't sit really well with me. And then the next thought was, well, fuck it. What about, you know, AA? And I got out and I walked my little ass up to a meeting, the same meeting that I went to the whole time. And I said, I'm new. I need help. And I cried in a meeting and and that was it. Off and running. You know, one one big thing. And the reason I do stuff like this is because the amount of people that want to help you is staggering. It's 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 pretty amazing, actually. That led to being immersed in that world and also led to me getting back into restaurants. And that's kind of where the, the the story picks up as far as my 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 lineage, if you will. People started to trust me again. And a girl that I worked with at J. Alexander's years earlier, who actually trained behind the bar, had become the general manager of the Burgundy Room. And she reached out to me and said, well, she gave us some time because <laughs> it was, you know, I, I feel like I can trust you again. Do you want to work at the Burgundy Room? And I was like, yeah, short north, you know, I don't know, well, whatever. And uh, I started, and I loved it. I mean, the food was bonkers, you know, better than anything I'd worked with before. Uh, Andy Brandon was the chef at the time, and he's uh, still a pretty good friend. And just the, the amount of people I met really quickly that kind of like got it 
It, it was pretty amazing. That was the first I heard of Chris Gilman. And the Burgundy Room led to, I got to know the people at G. Michaels, RIP. Um, uh, my buddy Aaron Webb uh, hit me up. Uh, he was the, I think he was the dining room manager at G. Michaels at the time. And hit me up and said, hey, my buddy Bill Glover uh, has a place in Clinville. He's looking for a manager. Uh, if you're interested, and my girlfriend and I went at the time went and I was, again, blown away, like, holy shit, this food is so different. As soon as he called me and said that they were looking for a manager, I, I felt like I hadn't wanted anything more in my life than to be a part of that, to be a part of that, like trendy little independent food scene or whatever you want to call it. And uh, I went, I interviewed and I, I to this day, I think that I've gotten, like I just said, with Burgundy Room opportunities in restaurants because I'm sober. Like it's unusual. People can trust you. There's nothing new under the sun as far as like, you know, Chris Dillman was a fantastic asset as far as like, you know, I could call him up and ask about wine, things like that stuff. I didn't have to try. I think I realized my worth over a course of time. It took a while, but I'm very, I'm, I, I can run a floor. I can, I can hire people. I can motivate people. I can do that kind of thing. Uh, the booze aspect to me is a product. But I was at Sage as the front of the house manager, got to know Bill Glover really well, got to know some really, really cool people there, really cool regulars too, um, and just started to learn an appreciation for people that were doing um, like what I like to call this put on a show in a barn, you know, well, I think we had one, <laughs> the, the investors were his parents, you know, um, Bill's insanely talented. He's a big personality, uh, but he's, I still consider him a friend. Uh, but from there... Um, I went on to the Sycamore. So I'd worked with Chris Crater at the Rossi years before, years before. Because when I was at Club 185, they bounced me around to different restaurants. At the time, they owned Rossi, Press, and 185. I think they had a place out in Granville for a second. And then the Sycamore uh, led to me being the general manager there. And when the pandemic hit, I was working on being the outgoing general manager and the ingoing, whatever you call it, general manager of Cosacha and the pandemic hit and both those restaurants were sold over the pandemic. Um, and that led to me getting a lot more involved with sobriety and things like that. A consultant gig that I've uh, been working on for a while and Ben's friends. I think everybody's priorities shifted a little bit over the pandemic. So currently I am an associate back with Cameron Mitchell Restaurants, Carmine Marshall, at the Avenue down in Dublin. And I really enjoy it. And it's really, really busy. And there's some really cool people that work there. So when you're going through, you know, you're working in all these different restaurants and stuff, you're essentially failing upwards. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Looking back on it, you know, and, and doing everything that you have and all the reflection that you have now, was it just you liked kind of being the center of attention? Or what do you think kind of was why you never really until later hit like rock bottom? Like it was always kind of like, Oh, this is a problem, but oh, this place wants to hire me. Oh, this is could be an issue, but oh, I can just go work over there. I think that you kind of hit the nail on the head and the idea of like, well, I can just go work over there. Like I'd get fired from jobs and have a better job an hour later. Like, you know, I essentially fired myself at Hoggies and 185 was one of the best jobs I had. I mean, I, I know I made it sound a little scary, but the amount of people I got to meet and the money I made and just it was fun. Um, but I think that like if, if you're asking, why didn't I leave restaurants? It's more... I didn't know how to do anything else. Honestly, I know I, you can throw me behind a bar now and you know, I'm, I'm comfortable really three places period. And that's behind a bar, sitting at a bar and in a meeting like that's it. Um, and I'm not even really that comfortable sitting at a bar anymore. You know, I, I'm sure over the course of time, if you're talking to people, it's gotta be in your blood a little bit. 
Um, also, I know how restaurants work. I manipulated the system. I knew that if I needed 10 days off to go to jail, they'd be cool with it. When I was at the cell phone company, Verizon, and I said, hey, I just got arrested. Um, I might be looking at some jail time. They were like, well, we can support 48 hours. That's it. And of course, I'm like, well, what the fuck is that? <laughs> you know, that's that's normal is what that is. You know, that's a, a corporation saying, look, you fucked up. You know, if you're going to go to jail, we we're hands off kind of thing, which is more than fair. But restaurants didn't really work like that, at least the ones I was part of. But again, that's not like a blanket statement about restaurants or anything. But yeah, I, I like the cash in hand. I like the idea. Pretty early on, I figured out that it's almost it's like an equation. If you work this hard, you make this amount of money. You know, you take a night off, you make no money. You know, my wife and I have been together four years now, and it's been a struggle for her, even as a general manager, because it's so ingrained in me. If I'm not in the building, I'm not making money. I'm not worthwhile. I mean, there's there's an aspect for restaurants that kind of, you know, the toxic hospitality thing when you get into of this place does not run without you kind of thing, um, especially in little tiny independent places where you're the only manager. I, you know, I talk about you know, the places I've worked and they're great and all that, but there's a lot of downsides to independent places. Well, fuck the, the three places I mentioned that I worked aren't around anymore. You know, there's that, you know, uh, when I, in my interview at the Avenue, which is, you know, Cameron Mitchell restaurants, Kristen, who's the general manager, who I'm a huge fan of, I've known her for a long time, which is a big reason I wanted to work there. You know, she said, why, why go back into, you know, corporate, you know, you've been in the, doing this independent thing for a while. And I said exactly that. I was like, look, you know, these places keep, you know, closing up, you know, seven years is a great run for a restaurant here in uh, town. Now, I mean, G Michaels broke the mold. I mean, they were what, 25, 23 years, I think something like that, but they had the exact same issues. You know, I think the, the pandemic just sort of shuffled everybody around a little bit. And I was also surprised how many places opened in the pandemic. So we got some legendary places went away, but uh, some newer places, some, hopefully some newer cool places will open up. And, you know, from a, Selfish perspective, you know, I was part of Burgundy Room, I was part of Stage, Sycamore now. I mean, in my mind, legendary places in Columbus now. And I, you know, it's like when a celebrity dies young, they die pretty. I, I don't I don't have to talk about the problems with the places. Everybody just remembers all the good shit, which is pretty cool. When going through kind of your sobriety and everything, which you get to, did you look back? Was it family life? Was it somebody in your family that like led to, you know, alcoholism or was it just being in that environment that you just love the camaraderie and the social aspect and that kind of led to it? I think it's a little bit of a little bit of both. I heard a guy I'm not I'm not huge on the blame game kind of thing of like, you know, my parents, this, my parents, that. But hereditary wise, um, alcoholism supposedly skips a generation for males, at least. And my grandfather, who we called Grandpa Beer was always sitting at the table. He's a truck driver, always had a beer. He was kind of nasty. He could, he could say some fucked up shit. If, if I got it, I got it. I don't, it's one of those things of like, I heard a guy in a meeting say, it's like the show Quantum Leap. Like, and this is, this is a guy, by the way, who woke up in somebody else's car going the wrong way, being chased by the police down 161. And he said, that's, it's like Quantum Leap. Like you just wake up in somebody else's life and you have something to do. You just don't know how you got here. And it doesn't fucking matter. Having said that, I the second part of your your question, 100%, I just like being around people. I like going out. I like, obviously, restaurants and bars facilitate that. I like going out and just acting stupid, which I still do, by the way. I'm just drinking a soda water and not getting arrested. And it's an, an extension, I think, of restaurants. Like, whatever's going on in my life, you know, I can go into a restaurant for, you know, eight, nine hours, have a good time, 
and just kind of put everything on the shelf, put all my problems, whether it's a breakup or some money problems or whatever, I got to go in and facilitate a good time for other people. And in turn, I end up having a good time. I think that that put stuff on the shelf thing was definitely an aspect of me for, for going out after work. Like, you know, the fuck else you going to do, you know, go out and drink and worry about, worry about tomorrow, tomorrow kind of thing. Um, but then that turned into for me, 15, 16 years of, you know, putting everything on the shelf. So I don't, the science of it, I, I kind of pay attention to, I kind of don't, it helps more with, you know, when I talk to other people about it, but at this point now, you know, not to get esoteric on you or anything like that, but like, there's, there's a couple in town who work with like psychedelics, like, you know, we can, we can take away trauma. We can take away, you know, whatever. And they, they said, we can take away your alcoholism. And I, I think my response was, I don't want you to take away my alcoholism. It's like, for me now, it's my superpower. The only shame of being an alcoholic is doing nothing about it. We get a pretty bad rap for willpower. Like you have no willpower. And we talked about this at Columbus Penn's friends. I would argue that alcoholics have all the willpower because if you, if you can keep digging in your life, when bosses, managers, coworkers, girlfriends, moms, judges are telling you to stop and you keep digging, fucking up your own life. That's a lot of willpower. So if you can take that and focus it in the right direction, you can do anything you fucking want. And I've, I've seen that over the last, you know, right now I'm sitting on a little over 10 years sober and it changes every day. It doesn't define me, but it's definitely a big part of me. Did you have a moment where you hit rock bottom that led to deciding at some point you have to decide for yourself like people can take you to rehab and, and all that stuff too but you have to want to do it yourself too yeah 100 percent. i was in this is probably and this is not atypical probably two or three months into being sober after the jail thing when i woke up and thought well fuck it i'll give it a shot i was sitting in a meeting and i hastened to uh, to quote the the literature of aa because it is supposed to be anonymous but there's a chapter that kind of lists all the ways we try to quit our drinking and it's stuff this thing was written in the 30s like we drank natural wine we drank beer only yada yada whatever a lot applied to me and there was a a line that said took a trip did not take a trip and i thought it was just like a cute little you know play on words whatever and then it hit me that I skipped my one of my best friends from high school's wedding. He got married in Wake Forest and I skipped it because I didn't trust myself. Like I, I knew I'd go down and fuck up his wedding. This person's to this day still really important to me. So I therefore did not take a trip. And it was in that moment that I was like, oh, I'm totally in the right spot. Like, you know, this is exactly where I'm supposed to be. And that really kind of like lit the fire under me to be involved in 12-step recovery and um, that kind of thing. But as far as like, like physical bottoms, like pick one. I mean, you know, waking up at 4 p.m., you know, late for your shift, wrecking cars, ruining relationships. I'm a fan of the term, the only true bottom is your dad. Cause that, you know, if I'm, if I'm still sucking air, as my sponsor likes to say, then I got a shot at today. And um, that's, that's a pretty big deal. And I have over the course of time, you know, with restaurants specifically, had an opportunity to help some people, um, lead them to meetings, talk about it, you know, whatever. Uh, there was a girl that hit me up on Facebook a couple of things like a year or two ago that said, Hey, I want to talk. And we, you know, I worked with her, I think at fish market or something. And she said, I think my drinking is so bad. I have to talk to Andy Smith. And I thought that was a hilarious and B, like actually really cool because I, I found Facebook about a year after I got sober and I couldn't stop talking about my dog and being sober, being sober in a restaurant. Um, so when Ben's friends came along, it was like a perfect opportunity, like a perfect kind of matchup. Uh, for me at least. 
So what came first? Was it Ben's friends or was it sobriety shaken? Uh, Ben's friends came first. The idea of sobriety shaken has been kind of bouncing around in my head for a long time. Ben's friends, I think, facilitated the idea that I'm getting a little bit more attention for this. Ben's friends is a nonprofit. So we have the ability to advertise, for lack of a better word. We are not anonymous. That's the one thing I can't really wrap my head around as far as traditional 12 step as being anonymous. I mean, the 12 step says carry the message, but if nobody knows you're sober, how the fuck do you do that? And also um, in restaurants specifically, I've said in AA meetings, you can't swing a dead cat in a restaurant without hitting a fucking alcoholic. So if I'm talking about being sober, talking about being happy, being sober, people come out of the woodwork. And over the course of time, I've gotten to see some people that were pretty, pretty low in restaurants because it's such a great place to hide. But Sobriety Shaken um, has been forming over the last year or so. Uh, some people, again, I'm blown away by the amount of people that want to help uh, with stuff like that because everybody has someone that they've been affected by. Um, and they realize how important this thing is to create a consultant gig where I'm actually, I can almost consider myself a militant alcoholic. Like I'm, I'm walking into places talking about being sober in restaurants, which is pretty, pretty crazy. If you really think about it, it's very punk rock, I guess. I don't know, but I can't not do it. So sobriety shaken, the idea the actual, like, um, forming the business came after Ben's friends. So with Ben's friends, what is exactly Ben's friends? Ben's Friends is a coalition of sober F&B people committed to their sobriety in an industry filled with drugs, alcohol, and stress. And that is directly stolen from the preamble. That's the only thing we read at meetings. And then we throw out a topic or we have a speaker. It is the child, uh, brainchild of Steve Palmer and Mickey Bass, two gentlemen in Charleston, South Carolina, who both been sober for a very, very, very long time. Um, I won't quote their dates because I'm sure I'll get them wrong. I think Mickey's been sober 800 years or something, and he's got the wisdom to prove it. But Mickey was like, I think he was voted like concierge of the decade or something crazy. He knows everybody. Like when I, when I, Ray, when I say he knows everybody, he knows fucking everybody. It's crazy. Once you get him talking, he was, he ran the Charleston grill in the Belmont hotel when I met him, because we flew down there and got to meet him, got to stay in that hotel, which is pretty sweet has since retired and devoted all of his time to Ben's friends. Uh, Steve Palmer is the owner of the group of restaurants, Indigo Road. They are in like Atlanta, uh, Charleston, obviously, uh, branching out some different states. But they have like steakhouse and sushi, that kind of thing. Both incredible guys, but they had a uh, employee who they both knew pretty well, Ben Murray, who took his own life uh, due to this stuff. And in my opinion, had a frustration. They said, let's just start a meeting. Like, let's start a, a support group. Uh, for restaurant people where it's okay for restaurant people to come and talk about being sober. Like I've been in meeting, my, my first sponsor told me to get the fuck out of restaurants. You know, I've had judges tell me to get out of restaurants. I've had, I mean, my poor mother said, if you could just stay away from those bad restaurant people, you'd be okay. And I wanted to say, I'm the worst one. <laughs> I'm the bad restaurant person. There was a point in my life when I was embarrassed to say I was an alcoholic working in a restaurant. I was embarrassed to say the opposite of that in a meeting. Like I, it's not frowned upon or anything like that, but I've gotten some, I've gotten some shit about working in a restaurant and people just can't really wrap their head around it. But what traditional 12 step tells me that there's not, if you're working a program, you're working with other people, a sponsor, all that kind of stuff, there's nothing we can't do. So why does that not apply to restaurants? You know, and there's quite a few of us once Ben's friends, which started in Charleston and then kind of like branched out to other cities because people got wind of it. There are articles about it. Again, they're not anonymous. I saw an article on Facebook and sent him an email and said, this is really cool. You should start one in Columbus, Ohio. 
they immediately fired back. We've thought about Columbus, Ohio, but we think you should start it. And I was like, all right. At that point, Cameron Mitchell restaurants got involved. I think actually before me, they were looking at it. They provided a space. They provided some marketing. They provided all sorts of stuff. We were the ninth city, if I remember. But we're talking places like Austin, Texas, Portland, Seattle, and we're branching out. I think there's 15 cities at this point. And we went online like the fucking first week of the pandemic, which for me, a non-computer guy was terrifying. You know, I did to figure out how to, you know, turn my porn and music machine into a meeting machine overnight. It was fucking terrible. I started to meet people across the country, you know, and some actually pretty big names, like the guys that run the Portland, Gabriel Rucker and Gregory Gordet, uh, were on fucking Top Chef. Um, Austin uh, is run by Philip Spear, who, if I remember correctly, I think he just fired or had fired the guy that won Top Chef. Like he, he runs a restaurant called Commodore, which is supposedly amazing. I've never been, unfortunately. But he also started a run club, the Commodore Run Club, which was featured in fucking Runner's World magazine. It's insane. And I watched Top Chef this last season because of Abishar, and I never watched it before. And I'm like, fuck, I know half the people on here because of sobriety. Like, it's crazy. And it just, it made me emotional, actually, because this thing is so important. There's a girl, Sasha, who she didn't make it super far in Top Chef, but there's a whole little blurb of her talking about being sober in restaurants. And I sent her a message. I was like, fuck yeah. Like, keep talking. Be sober out loud you know, especially in restaurants. But anyway, I got to know people across the country, people like me who can't shut the fuck up about being sober in restaurants. And one one thing I did want to say about Ben's Friends too is we very highly encourage restaurant language, line cook language. We're not little petite wallflowers by any stretch of the imagination. And we also have a lot of people, you know, people who've been on your podcast actually, who attend Ben's Friends meeting, maybe not regularly, but they show up. I like to call people like that sober allies. We have quite a few, and I encourage anybody to attend either the live meeting, uh, which is in uh, Columbus, 11 a.m. Sundays at Cameron's American Bistro in Lenworth, 2185 West Dublin Granville Road, or any of the online meetings, which you know you can find on Ben'sFriendsHope.com. Because being not being not anonymous, you know, there's this mystique, I think, of you know sobriety meetings and things like that. But we're attempting to change the conversation as far as restaurants go, because there's still that bullshit, you know, stigma that I completely, you know, uh, never trust a sober bartender, never trust a skinny chef, that kind of bullshit. And I think that we exist. One of the big reasons is to prove that you can do this in restaurants sober and be apparently pretty successful. I mean, we have some like fucking celebrity chefs on there, which is crazy to me. It's so it's, it's so wild and some really, really interesting, cool people. And you also get some really good stories. Like really, really good restaurant stories. We don't mess around. Like I, I had an opportunity for uh, a while to go in. Like if you get a DUI, go to DUI camp kind of thing. And I'd be the the day a guy that would come in. Obviously, I'm there for me. But you know, I I start off and say people always say like you know I don't know stockbrokers. We we party you know hard at store lawyers. We party hard. And I'm like fuck you bartenders, bartenders and servers. We 24 hours a day. We are not messing around which kind of feeds into that a little bit. But at the same time, I always get like, you know, a couple, couple smiles, a couple hands go up like, Oh yeah, I'm a restaurant guy. Like I get it. You know, I get it. So to break, to break that stigma, I guess is super important to me. That's why I can't, I can't stop talking about it. What's the biggest difference then between Ben's friends, which you founded the Columbus chapter of and run that and then sobriety shaken, which is this new extension of it. I would say the biggest difference is Ben's friends is a, it's a group. It's an actual like group. Um, it's a lot more like an example of 
a topic that I'd throw out would be more like, you know, I'm a big fan of like redefining words. Like what does the word alcoholic mean to you? It's more meetings, be it for 12 step recovery or uh, Ben's friends is just for people to kind of get their feet wet a little bit. Like if you pop into a zoom meeting or you walk into Cameron's Sunday at 11 AM, you want to do something different. You realize there's an issue. You want to show up and you want to hear how other people did it. So Friday Shaken is I'm talking to owners, managers, coworkers of let's start addressing how you handle these people. That sounds terrible, these people, but I can't imagine anybody in restaurants at this point that hasn't been affected by this. I mean, I was at a place, a little independent place where we had to fire us, the chef, the executive chef, because he was showing up fucked up. And that put us into a tailspin that almost shut us down. I mean, it was, you know, again, being an independent restaurant, we all kind of like pulled, pulled our bootstraps up and got it done. But, you know, it affected every single person in that building. So if there was a way, if people were like handed this information of how to go about talking about it, having tough conversations, not just you're fucking fired, you know, or you got a problem, do something about it. If there were avenues to go down to address this a little bit more personally, again, Philip Spear in, uh, in Austin is doing some really cool stuff as far as just mental health, like getting ahead of it, like preventative kind of thing offering mental health resources in restaurants, um, which are sorely lacking, I think, at this point. And also something I noticed talking to a lot of HR people through about Ben's friends is a pretty serious lack of knowledge of 12-step recovery or, you know, like go to rehab kind of thing. You know, the follow-up. Ben's friends is a, a big facet of that, just the fact that we exist, you know, that there's some place that they can say, hey, go check this out or whatever a possible like be on a retainer kind of thing of like, you know, I'm the guy you call when somebody has an issue, that kind of thing. And talking about the science of it, I think there's a very, there's a, a misunderstanding of how exactly this works. Again, a lot of people give a shit about willpower. I think that has absolutely nothing to do with it. I think if, if you're in my boat, you're born with this thing. And again, the only shame is doing nothing about it. And also, you know, creating environments and restaurants where I'm, I'm not saying let's get rid of the shift drink, you know, that's a little drastic, but here's, here's a yoga coupon for, you know, doing a great thing. There was a day I, I showed up at a, a job I won't name and I would, had been up for probably three days and I looked like it and I had won some sales contest and they handed me a bottle of wine. And even the manager was like, I'm sorry, <laughs> like, this is kind of awkward. Like I probably should have gotten fired, but instead I'm getting handed uh, alcohol. So just a little shit like that. I just, just being more aware, being more sensitive to the idea that there are sober people that work in restaurants, make it a little bit more accessible that i've again i keep saying this which is ironic i can't shut up about being sober in restaurants so i've worked with a lot of people who are now i think more prepared to you know if that issue comes up with somebody that they're like well i work with this guy he xyz you know that kind of thing so if i'm coming with that information um and just counseling really you know there are restaurants that are on kind of the let's call it the cutting edge of stuff like that where they're bringing in different things like mental health aspect. You know, there's been restaurants a few years ago that started with, you know, health insurance, which wasn't a norm in the restaurant industry to give your employees stuff like that. But with everything going on with COVID, restaurants closing, contracting, finances getting tighter, rising costs of food and goods and all that stuff. How do restaurants continue to or begin to offer those things for their workers? Or is that the reason why there's such a staffing shortage is a lot of restaurants still don't have those options available. And that's why people refuse to work there. I say the second part of your, your question is true. There's a lot of people are starting to see that this issue is pretty real, that the hours are long, 
most of the time the compensation is there as far as money goes, but sometimes it's not. I think that people are just kind of realizing that the the work-life balance needs to be addressed. I think my answer to the staffing shortage is take care of the people that are there. You know, I drove past a Burger King the other day and it said now hiring free iPhone. So a guy off the street is getting a free iPhone and I'm being asked to work, you know, 90 hours a week like normal. He's got to be there 90 days before he quits, right? Right, exactly. So, I mean, it's been an issue, you know, uh, Cameron Mitchell restaurants are actually doing doing pretty good as far as uh, staffing goes. We still feel it. They do offer insurance for employees, that kind of thing. They are huge supporters of Ben's friends, but there has been some grumbling of like, you know, well, we're watching people come in being offered all this stuff. You know, what about the people that have been here forever? And they're actually really good about that. But like we know, servers, you know, kitchen staff, you know, whatever. Like to like to complain. In answer to your question, with uh, money getting tighter, I the idea of maybe even letting the guests know, like, hey, there's going to be a you know a little surcharge on your check for mental health availability, kind of thing. Be it like I said, yoga classes, running clubs, you know, sober nights out, you know, whatever. And also, sobriety is not the only thing that you know we're talking about. There's you know suicide prevention, that kind of thing. Get the guests involved. If you really, really like a restaurant you go to and they tack on a couple bucks onto your bill for, you know, hey, we're going to take the kids out, do X, Y, Z. I think people would be on board with that because, you know, the the explosion of the N.A. beer scene or, you know, N.A. cocktails, you know, I, I don't think that's an accident. I think people have noticed over the pandemic, over the lockdown, whatever, of how this business is affected. Not just restaurants, really. I think people kind of, a lot of people kind of lost their shit over the last two years. So they kind of want to take a break on drinking. And one one brewery that I like, my friend Haley works for him, is literally called Athletic, Athletic Brewing. They do um, a different uh, array of any beers. I think it's that aspect of taking the alcohol away makes you more sporty, athletic, whatever. But the underlying thing, too, is just wellness in general, like mental health kind of thing. I don't think the NA beer scene is for recovering alcoholics. It's, it's an aspect of people getting more towards wellness. And we're kind of like brushed under that umbrella a little bit. Do you think with some of this stuff, restaurants or their owners or whoever, they have a responsibility to educate the public on not just food costs, but like if you're going to put a $10 surcharge on the end of the bill for all those things, like you mentioned, some of that has to be educated to the public. But as we've seen, and we kind of continue to see Sometimes people get too much credit for being able to understand things. You know what I mean? Like the country's really divided politically and all that stuff. And you have people that don't believe, you know, science or anything like that. Now, maybe that's just not your customer base, so it doesn't really matter. But like, do restaurants have to educate people onto these are things that are going on in our industry, whether it's the mental health aspect, the food costs, and that's why this is part of us and and everything like that? Or do you just kind of, you know, assume that people that really follow your restaurant already kind of know that? That's a great question. I would say that every restaurant I've worked for, and I'm guilty of it as a manager, you know, if I'm hiring somebody, I'll say, you know, we're a family here. You know, we're a real family. And I think it's time to put your money where your mouth is. You know, I I don't think it's beholden on the owners to educate the guests. I do think it's beholden on people like me or, you know, the Ben's friends, people in general, or, you know, the, the idea of educating the owners. You know, I think that everybody, I think the lockdown kind of pulled the curtain back a little bit on some stuff that restaurants, for lack of a better word, get away with, 
You know, um, I've had no, I've had no single person, owner, operator, manager, coworker, whatever, at least to my face, tell me that Ben's friends or sobriety shaken is a fucking bad idea. I've had owners actually, when I was still at the Sycamore in German village an owner of Volcanado, I got to know him over the course of time and him and his wife, as soon as I, one of the articles came out about it, came over and I said, are you looking for a table? He's like, no, I came to talk to you. He's like, fucking whatever you need. I, I get a little emotional about it. He's like, I've buried five people. Like this shit is fucking real. Like I, I think that the lockdown, the pandemic, whatever is simply a fantastic jumping off point for people to be educated. Like, I think they want to be actually, I think they want to know what it's like to live in this restaurant, insane, crazy gin soaked, you know, promiscuous world. You know, I remember when I would tell people I'm a bartender, they thought I was a fucking magician. Like people were fascinated by that. I'm like, I, you can teach a monkey how to make drinks. It's just, you got to have nine conversations with nine different people at the same time. That's the magic of it. If, if there is a fucking magic to it. So a sober bartender, like, I think people, I think people want to know, I think that, you know, I'm, I'm watching, like if Pepsi came out with a vitamin Pepsi tomorrow, I wouldn't be surprised. Like, you know what I mean? Like people are more, you know, I want to be like the holistic wellness health is this trend that has nothing to do with sobriety, but I think people are trending more towards that. And I think that I'd, I'd like to give the guests a little bit more credit. Say, you know, if, if there was a, a conversation about that, that they would lean more towards, well, shit, I worked in a restaurant in college. I know what it's like. It's really fucking hard, you know? So let's, let's help these guys out a little bit. If that puts a couple extra bucks on my burger, so be it. You know, there are going to be some people that take the fuck off, I'm sure. The places that I've been uh, lucky to work in, I don't see it really being an issue. I think it comes with the passion, and this is, again, where sobriety shaking comes in, of talking to the owners, talking to the chefs, talking to, let's use that fucking celebrity chef culture. You got people, big names, talking about being sober in restaurants. This is, it's an issue. Like, even people that have nothing to do with restaurants, when I would, you know, talk about Ben's friends, like, hey, I saw blah, blah, whatever. You guys really need that. (laughs) Like, you know, I think people realize that, that it's an issue and are willing to do maybe not anything, but something small with like the pandemic and lockdowns and stuff. I mean, I think they said, I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, but alcohol consumption went up 600% or whatever. Cause nobody had anything to do. Like you were locked in your house and it was like, well, what else do I do? Has there been an increase in people like associated with you and what you're doing? Like, have you seen an uptick in people like, Hey, like I realized like this was kind of an issue and, and now I want to get involved with that. Um, the one statistic I heard recently was the, um, and not to be a bummer, alcoholic and drug related deaths also went up 30% over the pandemic. But yeah, I, my thing was you either, I think over the course of the, the last couple of years, you either lean into being sober, you lean into being drunk, you know, one of the two, and that's pretty, pretty normal. Um, I didn't realize, I think I, I naively said on one of the Ben's friends calls with the leaders, well, everybody's locked down in their house. And one of the other leaders was like, yeah, but they're delivering booze to your house. (laughs) Like it's, this is bad. This ain't good. Um, But I will say, and I I haven't said this for a while, actually, once Zoom came along, um, if any group, you know, is is good at pivoting and good at figuring out like something happens and hits you in the face, it's restaurant bartenders kind of thing. Like, you know, we definitely know how to make the best of a bad situation. And um, I've seen, I've been blessed actually to see some people because it's been so long. We've been on Zoom for God, one or two years now. Watched people get sober over this pandemic. I mean, people that show up and 
their screens. What what's kind of cool about Zoom is you can be 100% anonymous. Like I've had people that will pop on and they turn their camera off and it just says anonymous, but they're just listening. Like, fuck it. I don't care. Show up, listen, whatever. And then that camera's on and then they're talking and then they're being a part of the group and then they're reaching out on the phone. And I've gotten to see that in real time, which is pretty amazing. This is somebody in like fucking Alaska. I think people took, whether it's sobriety, whether it's whatever. And I think this is a big, bigger reason for, you know, uh, restaurants struggling to find people. People found other shit, you know, that hobby that you're into, they kind of leaned into that, you know, woodworking or I'm going to be a personal trainer or, you know, I got a counseling certificate over the pandemic because I had time. I think people kind of realize that restaurants suck a lot of your time up, you know, and that, the, again, the work-life balance just has to be a priority now. Is sobriety something that you eventually get used to, or is it like a constant daily reminder, like not to relapse, essentially? That's a fantastic question. It's um, a, God, I don't even know how to answer that. I'm reminded because I do stuff like this. I hope somebody hears this and is affected by it, but honestly, I don't give a shit because I'm here keeping myself sober today, talking about this. This is the kind of shit that keeps me sober. Being a part of Ben's Friends keeps me sober today. I'm honestly not afraid of a drink at this point. I'm afraid of the behaviors that might lead to a drink. I'm afraid of stealing at work. I'm afraid of lying to my wife. I'm afraid of, and this is something I definitely should be afraid of, getting a little bit too big of an ego. My thing back when I was drinking and working in restaurants was I had a really good night tonight. Let's go get fucked up. Hey, I had a really bad night tonight. Let's go get fucked up. So it's, it's, I don't need, I don't need a reason to drink. You know, I, I've heard in meetings, you're working on a relapse, you know, it, the drink might come five years down the line, but it's the behavior that leads you to that. That's something that, that, yeah, I, I think I kind of watch that on a daily basis. I also, I have the ability today to apologize for things, which is pretty amazing. You don't get that in a lot of bartenders. That old, that old joke was the difference between God and a bartender. God doesn't think he's a bartender. And that's the kind of stuff that, you know, kept me out there. Like, like of course I drank. I'm a fucking bartender. I'm this. I'm not in the fucking Club 185 guy, you know, whatever. I, I, I think I keep myself connected. Like, I, w- I wasn't going to meetings or doing really anything for years before Ben's friends came along. Like, if somebody reached out and said, hey, I want to go to a meeting. Hey, I need help. 100%. You know, we'll talk on the phone. We'll hang out. We'll get coffee, whatever. But until Ben's friends came along, I really wasn't involved. And what Ben's friends has done, being so involved in that, and especially over the pandemic, that's all I, I had one thing to do each day. And that was be on that fucking meeting and then talk to people on the phone before or after. Uh, it got me so much more involved in my sobriety. It like lit a, again, a, a fire under me of like, why am I not involved in this? Why am I not talking about this to everybody? Why am I not? And it, it also, we are not AA or not affiliated with AA. We encourage you to maybe earlier or another program of recovery because we are not a program of recovery, but it also really, really made me appreciate my, I guess, bedrock of sobriety that I got from traditional 12 step because the people that make sense on Ben's friends calls got sober through a program, like a program of recovery. And it's, you know, it's not for everybody, but it sure as fuck helped me. You mentioned it a few times, traditional 12-step. So what's the biggest difference between the stuff that you're involved in and then the traditional 12-step program that everybody kind of mentally associates with rehab or alcoholism or, or whatever? The reason I say traditional 12-step, I'm being kind of cheeky, actually, because one of, one of the tenets of AA is to stay anonymous, which I can't fucking do. So uh, for me, it was AA. Well, there's, there's a ton, actually. AA is a program of recovery. AA, you are, you know, you work... These, these steps that are laid out. People say it's not a 
religion. For me, no, at this point now, AA is church. It's comfortable. They, they read a ton of shit at the beginning. There's call and response. I hear stories from people that I really, I've gotten to know. Columbus, Columbus has a huge um, Alcoholics Anonymous community for the simple fact. Well, everybody has a huge community, but AA was started in Akron. Ohio, some like close to 90 years ago. So we, I think we have like the third oldest meeting in the world on Morse Road on Saturday nights. It's a little bit more rigid. You know, it's a little bit more everything that you're asked to do is a suggestion, but you are asked to do some certain things. Ben's Friends is not that. Ben's Friends is a sober community support group where you just come and talk about being sober. We're going to ask you to do anything. We're not going to ask you to sponsor somebody. We don't have sponsors. We don't have that kind of thing. It's just restaurant people coming together to bullshit to say, hey, here's how I did it. You know, And if you're interested, maybe check this thing out. It's a bridge to sobriety. Is there a primary reason why so many people in the hospitality industry are affected by drugs, alcohol, mental health? How much time you got? <laughs> My predominant theory is a combination of cash in hand, the hours. You know, when, when I when I rambled off the preamble of Ben's friends, I like to be a little cheeky. When I get to the part of like, in an industry filled with drugs, alcohol, and stress, I say, and sex. And that's why I fucking did it. Like a lot of people, myself included, are attracted to it because you can kind of, you know, get away with stuff. I think that, you know, it's, an extension of people are having a good time, they're drinking, you know, whatever, that just kind of rolls into your night. Uh, there is an aspect of, you know, like I left work last night, it was a Sunday night, 1030. What else are you going to do? I think it's all very, at least front of the house, specifically big personalities. And I, you get pretty hyped up at work. I still, I'll come home and watch TV. I can't fall asleep for like two or three hours. I, I wish I could pin down one single thing of why, but I can't because... You know, I, I I sponsored a kid who said, you know, well, how am I supposed to go to a wedding and not get fucked up? Everybody at weddings fucked up. And I said, you know, I've actually been to a wedding sober and there's one table of dipshits like you and everybody else is sober. And I compare that to restaurants like I, I chose to see all the fuck ups. I chose to see all the people that go out every single night. Um, and in restaurants, especially after you've worked in a couple, there's a different group that goes out every single night. You can go out every single night if you want. There's also a ton of people that don't. There's a lot of people that, especially now in Columbus, you know, we're, we're a legit food city. There's people that are doing this as a career, you know, like you've had on your podcast, you know, a lot. Um, and I know that sounds dumb talking to you with the podcast, but, you know, in my day that, at least in my mind, that wasn't a thing. This was a fucking restaurants were temporary. Restaurants were a way to make beer money and meet chicks. And next thing you know, 30 years later, <laughs> here I am. So I... I don't know. I, I think that a lot of restaurants, bartenders play into that. Like, well, of course I drink, you know, I'm a fucking bartender. I think it's just becoming outdated. At least I hope. When I was at a certain place, which I keep mentioning, I feel bad. I was just a cliche of a bartender, like doing coke at work, trying to bang the regulars, drunk all the time. Like, it was just so stupid and so empty. And after I got sober, actually, I kind of got away from bartending because I didn't, I didn't need to be that guy anymore. You know, there's some people that like really need to be that guy. And, you know, you see it not so much with the mixology community. Like, you know, they're, those guys are fucking scientists. They're doing some cool shit. You know, I had an opportunity to work with Annie Williams Pierce um, a couple of times and the stuff they're doing at Lawber is unbelievable. Like it's so fucking cool. And I cannot even wrap my head around it. I'm at best a flair bartender, but she's like, they're, they're, they're professionals. So I think, I think there's a difference and I think it's the, the tide is changing. Hopefully we'll see. 
because you're a certified counselor. You did that over the course of COVID. Yeah. Being a certified counselor, is there a recommended way that people should approach a friend, a colleague, a family member, if they feel that that person is showing signs of addictive behavior, whether it's drugs, alcohol? There's no real like right way. Somebody, you know, like in my situation, I had a million people tell me that I needed help and I chose to ignore them. I had a funny conversation with Philip Spear um, on a Zoom call on, on my fourth OMVI. I had a guy at the DUI camp kind of give me shit about it. And I was so offended. Like, how dare you talk to me? He's like, four DUIs, get, get your shit together. And Philip had the exact same experience, which is funny. And I was, you know, I, I'm pretty sure I drank at that guy that night. Like, fuck you. Basically, let them know that there's avenues. Let them know that there's a million avenues at this point. Like if the guys, you know, who had started traditional 12-step recovery back in the 30s could see Instagram or Facebook or Zoom meetings or any of this stuff, I think they'd be blown away. One thing I definitely, definitely want to get across, and this is just kind of me talking, is encourage people to reach out to somebody for the simple fact that it helps that person so much more. Like if somebody reaches out to me on Facebook or Instagram or they show up at Ben's Friends, I get a little bit jazzed. I'm like, oh, cool. Yeah, you know, let's talk about it. That that helps me that day. Like we had a new guy that showed up yesterday. You know, he works at a restaurant. He's, you know, didn't drink for a year. And then he went through a breakup and now he's back. And I was like, man, thank you for being here. <laughs> like, I forget what that's like. Uh, as far as like intervention and things like that, there are definitely professional ways you can go about that. Until that person's ready, there, there's not a whole lot you can say. However, like I said earlier, the people that I've worked with, the people that I talk to, um, eventually the people I talk to with sobriety shaken are armed a little bit more with facts of like, there's this rehab facility, there's this, there's the idea that, you know, you're helping somebody else, you know, blah, blah, whatever. You know, the one, again, I, I can't be anonymous. I think the anonymous side of recovery kind of hurts it a little bit. Like people don't, I got lucky. I got arrested a thousand times. So I knew what the meetings were, I knew where they were. So when the shit hit the fan, I knew where to go. And I consider myself really, really lucky for that. With having to move the meetings online due to COVID from in-person, do you think that helped or hurt kind of your the overall mission of, of both organizations, really? Helps. Yeah, by a mile, by a fucking mile. Because my buddy, Matty, who um, I took to his first meeting, uh, it was a meeting on Mays Road, maybe 28 people, 30 people there. If you ask him to this day, he'll tell you there are 400 people there because it's so intimidating and scary. Like we're, you're walking into a room where a group of people are about to tell you, hey, the thing that works for you, the best alcohol and drugs, your solution to a lot of things, we're going to take that away. Now, you have no idea what you're getting back at that point, but it's fucking terrifying. Like, And you're probably in a pretty bad position in life. You just got out of a coma and was about as close to dead as I've seen. So for somebody to walk into that room is really fucking scary or ask for, ask for help. You know, they call it the thousand pound phone, pick up the phone and call somebody. But in my opinion, at least, and I may be wrong about this. If you can open your computer and click a button and you're in a meeting, fucking fantastic, even better. And for me personally, I've gotten to know people across the country. Like it's, it's wild. There's so many, there's so many of us and really, really, really cool people. Like there's, I get a little emotional talking about it because there's, I can think of five people right now that I'm super close with that we talk about really personal shit just because we both like to get fucked up in restaurants or all of us like to get fucked up in restaurants that I'm really, really good friends with that I've never met. I have no idea how tall they are. I'm fascinated with how tall people are. (laughs) 
So some people have traveled over the course of time. Obviously, it was not okay to travel at first, but I get really jealous when, you know, Brian from California meets Haley from Portland and there's a picture of them. It's amazing. I think that the Zoom thing and um, has been such an absolute gift. And also just getting the message out, things like this, you know, podcasts or, you know, I'm on the news, I think last week or something, the, the antithesis of anonymity, if you will. Um, just letting people know that there's a place you can go. There's somebody you can call. There's, you know, somebody who gives a shit. It's, I remember when I first started going to the meetings and somebody said, well, what are they like? I said, these people actually give a shit about me. Like, that's crazy. Like, you know, after the shift, we're drinking at a bar. Yeah, you're friends with those people. Invariably, all you talk about is what happened on that shift, which is fucking dumb. These people actually have a vested interest in seeing you get better because it's just my sobriety is very important to me. I love I love being sober today and my life is completely different, completely different. My if I got what I deserved, I'd be dead or in jail. This is not the life I deserve. But to watch somebody else do it, it's it's a miracle. You're from Columbus originally, right? Yes, sir. How has the food and restaurant industry changed since you've been involved? What do you think still needs to change? I kind of bounced around or tried to bounce around to places that I thought were like the job. Like, you know, uh, Jay Alexander's had, we had a really shit hot crew when I first started in the mid nineties. And it was like people who just kind of bounced around. A lot of those people ended up at Hyde Park on the cap at one point, but I don't, I don't think there's like the job anymore. You know what I mean? The restaurant business has exploded so much. I think that Again, I can only speak to my experience, but the the idea that the food is the focus has changed dramatically. I remember sitting at that table at Sage American Bistro at brunch, and I was like, holy shit, like, <laughs> what the fuck is this? Like, this is crazy. This is so good. And I've had a couple experiences like that. Jack Moore uh, was a line cook at Sage when I started. Awesome, awesome guy. And he ended up, we stayed friends. I actually officiated his uh, wedding with a, a Nikki, who was the head of sales at Watershed, who they met at Sage. So we all, you know, kind of stayed friends. He was the Sioux, I believe, at Greenhouse Tavern when they won the James Beard Award. And a couple of us went down. Of course, I'm there with the sous chef, which is kind of cool. Just that food. Like, what the fuck is this? Like, I I think that some people like myself got into restaurants again for beer money. Suddenly they're like this esoteric French inspired food cuisine you know, kind of changed the game. And I think that Columbus has done that. I think we can do it more. I think we, you know, we have some pretty amazing chefs in this town. I think they need to get a little bit more attention. I think that Columbus is, you know, the, the, the ugly cousin, if you will, of Cincinnati and Cleveland, and we don't get enough attention for, you know, our food scene. here. Um, and I would love to see that change. I would love to see this podcast change that I would love to see more people on top chef. I, I'm shocked that Avishar was the first one to be honest with you, because there's some really talented people here. Um, unfortunately, basically game shows like that are a way to get attention, you know, for people. Um, I think Bill Glover would be amazing on a show like that because he's a very big personality. And I hope he listens to this. Uh, I think that, you know, we have a long way to go, but I think that, you know, again, I'm kind of tooting my own horn here, but the idea that Ben's friends even exist here kind of put us on the map. As far as, you know, we're a food city and lead with a lot of other really cool places. I do think that the idea of sobriety and wellness is kind of gaining steam. And I'd like to see that uh, keep going. Uh, I, I've, I've seen places close and I've seen a couple of places close recently that broke my heart. But what I do know from the longevity I've had in restaurants, Sage being a great example, Sage closes doors um, somewhat abruptly. But the people there, you know, branched out to other really cool things. 
KTU was a, a infamous place down the short north, but that birth, like, you know, so many other places, you know, Rigsby's for their long run, you know, everybody that worked there went on to like really cool things. You know, I think that that's just the way the business, I'm sure every business is like that, but I, uh, what I know are restaurants. What's next for you professionally? I mean, is it just expanding, you know, the reach of both Ben's friends and sobriety shaken or? Yes. Short answer. <laughs> Um, expansion was on the plate for Ben's friends because obviously nobody saw this fucking pandemic coming was, I mean, we, we would like to be in every major food city, which let's be honest, is kind of every city. We've got a couple on the, on the plate right now. I have Ben's friends is a volunteer thing at this point. Um, so sobriety shaken. I'd like to see grown quite a bit. I am in a position where I'm not out to make a million dollars. I just want to get the word out, uh, working for, Cameron Mitchell restaurants right now as an associate at the Avenue has been fantastic because I'm not in charge of anything. The money's really great. And actually a big reason why I'm there is the support that, and I wanted to make sure I said this, the support that Cameron Mitchell restaurants, Cameron Mitchell specifically have given to Ben's friends and all these weird endeavors that I have has been unbelievable. Like I sent out, I sent a little email when we hit a year in the middle of the pandemic and said, you know, Hey, here's what's going on. We went online. We have, you know, 11 meetings a week, blah, 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 whatever. And um, it was farmed out to the HR and Cameron Mitchell uh, company. And the only person that responded personally was Cameron and said, keep it up. Like wh- whether you love him or hate him, you know, I know that some people are are on the fence about that from, I know that from working in independent restaurants forever, he's a good dude. Um, and they, and again, like a lot of owners, operators sees the the value in, in what we're doing. So yeah, I'd like to see that stuff expand. Obviously, you know, if I could, talk on a podcast every day or get on the news every day, I fucking would, but that's not really feasible. So um, my wife and I have uh, a couple houses. We're building a little rental empire at this point. So slowly but surely uh, with the housing market here in Columbus. So that's going to be a priority. Um, but I, I think I'll always, whether it's sobriety shaken, Ben's friends or actually working in a restaurant, always have one toe in the restaurant business because that's my family. You know, that's, you know, I say it, I've been getting emotional. I apologize. I say it, Every time I talk in a Ben's friends meeting, I say, Hey family, my name's Andy and I'm an alcoholic. And they're, they're my family, you know, sober people are my family. I got really lucky. I got, you know, my, my family, family, my restaurant family and my sober family. So when, once those came together, it was, it was magical. It was pretty cool. This question comes from Jordan Anthony Brown. He's the chef owner of the Aperture in Cincy, which will be opening soon, early next year, probably. He left behind a question for you, a previous guest on the podcast, uh, it's kind of more of a hypothetical scenario one. You can build a dream house anywhere in the world, but you cannot leave the surrounding 30 mile area until you die. Where do you build a house? Wow. I will say that one thing I didn't do when I was drinking, I've had to change a lot of behaviors over the course of time and it's slow, is travel. But my wife loves traveling, has gotten me into that. So we've gone to some really cool places. Jeez, that's a good one. Vermont, she worked, my wife worked as a brand manager for Ben & Jerry's. She fell in love with Vermont. I don't know. I, I waver. That's, that's, you can't leave. I'm a city kid. I love being in the city. I love like, you know, the tiny hole in the walls, hole in the wall restaurants that, you know, serve you a $3 fried chicken that will save your life. You know what I mean? Gee whiz. Ah, fuck it. I'll save Vermont. What question do you want to leave behind for the next guest? Could be anything. Well, I'm a big movie guy. I love movies about sobriety or lack thereof. I haven't seen a movie that really captures or a TV show that really captures restaurants. Because, you know, I think there's an aspect of restaurants that people don't want to know about. What, what does your, what, does your next guest have a favorite uh, movie 
or a TV show that actually really captures restaurants. It's not reality. There was a very short lived, I had a, a DVD actually, I think Scott Trulove, who was my manager at Burgundy Room, and then I think he's still at Cucina, had, they, they actually made a sitcom of Kitchen Confidential, uh, Anthony Bourdain's book, and a, a young ingenue, Bradley Cooper, played Tony, Anthony Bourdain. It was actually really good. Um, I don't know why it never aired. Um, and I don't know how Scott got it, but I haven't seen a ton of stuff that really captures that or just stuff about food, I guess, like a movie. What's their favorite movie about food? So we got a handful of questions left. Pretty much asked these to everybody who comes on the podcast. So there's a compare and contrast for everybody across the episodes. Who would you say is the biggest influence on your career thus far, looking back at it? Um, I've had a lot. Uh, gee whiz. I've had a lot of people over the course of my time who have really helped me. I, you know, I'm kind of waxing this car a little bit on this, but Chris Dillman has been a big influence in the simple fact that he's super professional. He's really funny, like really, really funny. I listen to his podcast specifically to hear him dog on the, the quartermaster sommeliers and his, his wealth of information. He kind of defines for me what I hope I am for sobriety, which is I know a bunch and I'm not a dick about it, I guess. Like, I mean, he's one of the smartest guys I know when it comes to beer, wine, liquor. And he's been a, an amazing resource, especially in sobriety. But he also had an opportunity. I was in charge of him at Sage, which was terrifying. But also that's how we became friends. But he's also one of the best bartenders I've seen in my life. And he just does not get weeded. He does not. He's calm the whole time. He's amazing with guests. And he's just such a nice guy. And I don't know. I just, I just like him quite a bit. He's been on my mind lately. He's a good dude. What's a restaurant in Columbus that you'd recommend that isn't a Cameron restaurant? Oh, uh, our go-to is Bozzi. There's one thing I would like to see in Columbus change, now that you mention it, and that's that the little places get more attention. Like, you know, Kihachi was a great example. Chris turned me on to that years ago, but nobody fucking knew it was there. You know, I'm always surprised when people don't know Bozzi's there. Bozzi's amazing. It's one of the best restaurants in the city. I've had really good stuff at Chapman's. Chapman's is really cool. Yeah, there's there's a Ballbird. I like what they're doing there. Um, I'm not, I don't imbibe, obviously, but I just like them. I gravitate towards people that I really like. I think like I push watershed at every one of my tables because I love Nikki and Jack. So if that answers it. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant, any place that you haven't been that you want to go to. We are going to Germany in 2023. That's been a bucket list for me for a long time. Iceland, I think would be a really cool one. I've heard really cool things about traveling to Iceland. It's kind of funny sitting here, you know, years down the road sober of when I, when I say, Hey, I'd like to go to Iceland. God love my wife. She'll go, we'll make it happen. Like we, we can do that. And that kind of stuff is, I used to think of vacations as just someplace else to get fucked up. <laughs> so that's, that's why I wasn't a big travel guy, but I'm pretty jazzed to be traveling now. And as far as restaurants, shoot, I'd actually like to, there's a couple people, more than a couple people on Ben's friends across the country who I've gotten to know really, really well. And I want to try their food because I think it says a lot about them. So I, I'm not going to name one specifically because that'll probably piss off the other one. But let's just say Ben's friends owned restaurants and there's a fucking bunch and they all sound really amazing. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working. Oh boy. Shit. I forgot about this question. I meant to prepare. It's going to be hard to top Chris's actually. I, well, I told this story the other night and I tell people at my tables that they say they're being annoying. And I say, well, listen, I was at club 185 one night, these two guys and this girl came in and of course we're doing shots with them. Um, but the girl was so fucked up that she started passing out and uh, put a shot of wild turkey in front of the guy or two shots of wild turkey in front of the guy. And uh, I said, I can't, I can't serve her anymore. Like she's done. And I guess he didn't like that. Cause he said, what'd you say? And when I leaned in, he picked up a shot of wild turkey and threw it in my face. 
And of course, I was not happy about that. By the time I got around the, the bar, the regulars saw the whole thing happen, essentially beat him out on the living stand. <laughs> and I went to grab the phone and the, the guy in the kitchen was like, no policia. Like we, we don't, we don't call the fucking police here. This, this is, this is what happens. And that's to me, that's a good bar. This guy, they didn't like beat the shit out of him or anything, but he, he definitely knew he wasn't welcome back. That was pretty wild. I like that shit. I wish I would have thought about this question. So I'm sure I have a couple more. But no, I, I, I like the fact you asked that question because one thing I tell people when they're like, oh, Ben's friend says, I'm like, come. Like it, it usually devolves into a bunch of old restaurant people just telling stories about restaurants that don't exist anymore. Like, you know, the KTU stories or the like the old short north, you know, those those fucking stories. Or, you know, I, there's a guy who works at the Mohawk um, who worked in the short north, like even like pre Rigsby's. And he's got some crazy stories. Back, back when, like, you know, back when it was a little sketchy. My uncle drove a cab in the 70s. Um, he, he passed away years ago. But he loved the fact that the Press Grill, Club 185, places like that were cool again. Because he said back in the day, like, you didn't go in the short north. They called it the shooting gallery. It was fucking sketchy. So for one of his birthdays, he came into Club 185 and had a big meal. And we got to take care of him. It was pretty cool. So I, I just like old, 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 like, way back when nobody gave a shit <laughs> kind of stories. The irony of short north. <laughs> being place that was labeled like the shooting gallery, but it's full circle in a way, I guess. I don't think it's anywhere near as bad as it used to be, but I'm definitely not one of those guys that like hates on the short North because it's, it's, you know, it's, there's still quite a bit of independent places down there, businesses, restaurants, whatever. I do, however, find it ironic that like a Kent Rigsby now wouldn't be able to open a restaurant there, which again, opportunity for growth. That's why South high is happening or, Parsons, like commune, that whole area, which I'm fascinated by. I think that's so cool. And that's basically how the short North started. You know, Ken was like, well, fuck it. I'll... And by the way, if you ask Ken Rigsby, he'll tell you he built the short North, which there's some truth to that. But he's again, big personality. Food, guilty pleasure. Oh God. All of them. Um, so I, I've joked about this before, but it's hundred percent true. I've worked like Sage when we were running, we would do a monthly wine dinner. Like we actually, we did a distillery dinner with Watershed very, very early on in their existence. And we're serving amazing food. We did a monochromatic dinner that was amazing where every dish was like a singular color, really, really cool stuff. Um, and I'm serving this amazing food and in restaurants invariably, like I, I joke, I've had some of my, you know, some of the best food in my life huddled over a trash can with other servers inhaling this stuff that, you know, midnight but a lot of times you forget to eat. So um, I've become a fan and I'll jazz it up a little bit when I get home. But the meatball sub at BP, I'm, I'm a fan. I'm a fan because, you know, you're heading home. You don't want to wait in line at Wendy's, whatever. You're like, fuck it. I'll just grab one of those. And I have a variety of hot sauces and, you know, uh, banana peppers and stuff like that. And it's disgusting. Don't get me wrong. It's existed in my in my wheelhouse for a while. My wife fucking hates it. She's yeah, she's not a fan. That would be, it. I actually, I hate to say it, but I do kind of enjoy it. And um, ice cream, I'm a big ice cream guy. Favorite tattoo. Do you have any tattoos? I have a ton, actually. I have, speaking of Sage American Bistro, everybody there, Bill included, and Jack, have these like crazy food tattoos. Jack's is really fucking cool. It's like scary food. I wanted to get a tattoo. So I got, it's, it's supposed to be like a highway sign with the knife and fork, like, you know, this exit, whatever, but it's Ohio. Uh, super hipster just to kind of be part of the gang, I guess. And my, my girlfriend at the time 
Um, I went to get it done and it fucking hurt. Cause if you notice, it goes all the way up to the armpit. Like he put in Scott Sansy did all the tattoos for the guys at Sage. Super talented. I think he's in Boulder now. Went to a lot of detail and Jack and Bill were both there just hanging out, you know, whatever. And I kind of winced a little bit because it fucking hurt. And my girlfriend at the time is like kissing my forehead. She's like, I'm so sorry. And I, Scott was cracking up. So I had to go, please stop kissing my fucking forehead. You're embarrassing me so bad right now. Like every restaurant in the world, people just fuck with each other. That's I think that's restaurants love language, like busting each other's balls. So for her to like, she was like rubbing my face and like, she's like, it'll be okay, baby. I'm like, get the fuck away from me. <laughs> You're embarrassing me in front of the cool tattoo guys, please. But I have that one, which I'm really proud of. It's restaurant oriented um, because I'm obviously I'm not a chef. I'm not going to get like a food thing. And then I have my dog on the other side here, which she's getting up there. So I thought I'd memorialize her before it's too late. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan. Not everybody is. If you were, was there a moment episode scene that always stood out to you? If you weren't, was there somebody else who would be like a travel or culinary TV personality that always kind of stood out to you? I always liked Anthony Bourdain's thing of like, his, uh, his, I don't know about obsession is the wrong word, but like eating food with other food, like how you like fold a piece of bread and eat chili with it. This is so embarrassing. If I eat pasta or something, I'll fold it like bread into like a pasta sandwich kind of thing. Like if I could avoid, like I, they used to fuck with me at Sycamore all the time. I get a bowl of soup and not even grab a spoon. I just fucking suck it out of the bowl. I always liked that about him. I actually really, I'm a big comedy nerd too. Uh, Phil Rosenthal, uh, who was a writer on Everybody Loves Raymond. It's really funny. And he has a travel show that I really like because he's just, he gets so excited about food. And I love that. I, one of the things that I've really loved about working in restaurants over the years is turning people on to shit they normally wouldn't have. And I've had an opportunity, especially at Sage, you know, Sycamore, we did some cool stuff or wine. Like I'm at the point now where my wine, beer, liquor knowledge exploded after I got sober. We had Elise Nero Misto by the glass and bottle at Burgundy Room. And I can sell the shit out of it. I've never had it to the point that I turned my wife onto it. And when she went to California to visit a friend, she went to the vineyard. And I said, make sure they know that your husband runs a restaurant where it's by the glass and bottle. And they like rolled out the red carpet for her and like, you know, let her try like a 96, like all this other stuff, whatever. I've never had it. And that to me, like, you know, going back to the Ben's friends thing, like you don't, you don't have to drink to be successful in this business. <laughs> Turning people on to the fact that Sancerre is a French Sauvignon Blanc or turning people on to the difference between Oregon or California as far as wine goes. You know what I mean? Like, like I actually get a lot of opportunities to do that at um, the Avenue because people come in with like a pre, like, you know, all oh, tequila's gross. Well, you haven't, you haven't tried the, uh, a better tequila. You know what I mean? And then dot, 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 I'm sober. That kind of blows your mind, which I don't obviously mention. Apparently, I mentioned a lot when the first article about Ben's friends came out. I said something to some regulars at the the bar at Sycamore. I said, "Hey, I guess they really outed me about being sober." They're like, "Yeah, you told us four years ago." <laughs> I like the aspect of turning people onto food, getting excited about food, and I think that the Phil Rosenthal, show, whatever uh, travel TV um, thing it is, or Top Chef for that reason, it turns people onto new things, and I get I get a little uh, thrill out of that. Where can people find you? Social media, website, all that stuff. I am on uh, Instagram right now as Sober Juggernaut, which I think is going to be changing to Sobriety Shake in here pretty soon once I get on my branding in line. I think that's about it. Facebook. Um, I'm so not like tech savvy. I have some people kind of help me out with that. Uh, Sobriety Shaken does have a website uh, with some cool shit on it and a way to get a hold of me if you just want to talk. 
kind of thing, um, or organize something where I can come into your restaurant and talk about this stuff, uh, or or even not a restaurant. You know, the person that's helping me with this is uh, pretty adamant about you know don't pigeonhole yourself to restaurants. Restaurants are my passion for sure, and people that work in restaurants. But you know, this isn't just a restaurant thing. I mean, shit, I got a DUI working at a fucking cell phone company. So what does that tell you? But yeah, that's those are the best ways to get a hold of me. Well, really appreciate you coming on, just sharing your story and, and everything that you went through and, and where you're at now. And, you know, for people that may be listening that have thought about being sober or, you know, taking stock or reflection and where they're at in their life or anything like that, I think it'll be helpful for them to just kind of hear somebody else's version. And maybe there's just different pieces that they can associate with. And, and hopefully that helps them in whatever way, whether it's they feel they need to get sober or they need to change something or, or whatever. But yeah, it's, it's really important what you're doing. Yeah. I hope that, you know, you're able to do some stuff for some restaurants and a lot of restaurants are trying to do stuff on their own, but it's, it's not easy. There's just not, there's just not as much money as people believe that it, that is there. So it's the more places that you can reach and the people, you know, definitely the better. It's also, I mean, for owner, I mean, I've been a general manager. I've never been an owner at this point, but you don't have a lot, a ton of time. There's not a lot of time to sit down with somebody and talk about this stuff. So if there's an avenue where you could get some, a little education or somebody to help you out that, I think that's important. And also too, I mean, my story is pretty extreme and sometimes I think it hurts me a little bit in relating to people because, you know, obviously because it rhymes, a lot of people do sober October, like Ben's friends were open to that. You know, it's, if you want to come and just fucking take a break, you know, that kind of thing. It's just not, you know, my buddy, Josh Gandy runs a podcast and his whole thing is, you know, you don't have to burn down your whole fucking life to figure out that, you know, sobriety might be a little bit better. And I fucking, I absolutely respect that. I think it's fantastic. I mean, I, I tried to burn down my life for sure. Um, I also think that's an asset, you know, I can, I can relate to people in that position, but there's, I think there's a whole uh, groundswell right now of people that just kind of want to just, you know, take a break. You know, it's okay to drink an NA beer when you go out. It's okay to you know, do sober October or even a month that doesn't rhyme or dry January, whatever the fuck you want to do. I, I support it. I, just, I, I get jazzed about, especially restaurant people wanting to take better care of themselves because we're an industry that just spends so much time bending over backwards to take care of other people that you kind of forget to take care of yourself. And I was guilty of that for a very long time. If people want to get in touch with Ben's friends, how do they do that? Ben'sFriendsHope.com. There's, it's the, a list of the meetings we have. Uh, Zoom is still chugging along, which is amazing. We have a 1 p.m. I'm actually about to host the 1 p.m. Uh, today. Uh, 1 p.m., sorry, Eastern Standard Time every single day. There's an 11 p.m. Monday, Thursday, and Saturday. And then there's a men's specific meeting and a women's specific meeting on Wednesdays at 10 p.m. And you can find all that information, plus a fabulous downloadable picture of me and the other leaders, if that's what you're into. So it's just, it's just been really cool to get, get all this stuff out there. And I really, really, really appreciate you letting me come on here and talk. I, I love the opportunity to talk about this stuff. It's one of the few things I really give a shit about. It's a lot of chef interviews and sommeliers too, but we've been branching out into just different things that touch the hospitality industry. So definitely want to be able to, to help, you know, any way we can and, and put that information out there for people that listen and, or people that come later and wind up listening and going through back episodes and stuff like that. So they, you know, if they know somebody or they themselves, you know, feel like they need help or whatever, they have a place to reach out. So, and I definitely wanted to double down on the thing of like, if you're, if you're hesitant about reaching out to somebody and this is just in general, just know that is more important or can be more important to the, the person on the other end. You could be helping them out too. It's not, you're not like a fucking burden. 
or anything like that. Or, you know, I've had people reach out and say, I'm sorry to bother you. I'm like, trust me, you're not bothering me. This is, this is what I take very seriously. And if I can, and if I can affect your change in any way, I will. Well, appreciate you coming on. We'll let you get over to the meeting that you got scheduled here in a few minutes. Feel free to reach out. Anything you ever need from us, happy to help any way we can. Yeah, yeah. No, I really appreciate it. It's awesome to meet you. A big thanks again to Andy Smith for being more generous with his time coming on the podcast, taking some time out of his day before he had to jump right into some meetings that he was hosting through Zoom and everything. So hopefully everybody kind of found this episode interesting. It's a little different than what we normally do, but I felt it was really important, especially with the holidays coming up and and everything that kind of goes along with seeing family and friends and stuff like that too as well. So I think it served as uh, maybe like a just a you know good reminder for people too as well, or if somebody feels that they do have problems that they're facing, that they know that there's an avenue that they can reach out and, and get the help that they need. So Again, make sure to follow Andy on Instagram at Sober Juggernaut. You can follow SpoonMob on Instagram at SpoonMob. We're also on Twitter and Facebook too as well. Check out SpoonMob.com, the website. We have different photos of food, different breakdowns of different wines and stuff that I really enjoy. You can also find uh, links to all the podcasts that we've done and also different chef profiles and stuff too of people that we've both had and have not had on the podcast yet. So make sure to give that a look if you haven't been there for a while or if you haven't checked it out initially. Took a little while to build, so really proud of it. But appreciate everybody. Questions, comments, feedbacks, everything like that. You can write in either through the contact portal on the website or email us directly, spoonmob at yahoo.com. But again, appreciate everybody just, you know, helping spread the word. That's kind of the biggest way that we've grown and we continue to kind of grow every week. So it's always awesome to partner with different people, have them come on the podcast, share their story. I think it really helps kind of connect people with, you know, give them a, another dimension of the food that they might be eating or the experience they might be having at a restaurant, whether it's open or not, or, or what to expect and stuff like that. So uh, the restaurant industry is something that I've always enjoyed. And, you know, it's always kind of feels like it's teetering on the edge of collapse just with COVID and, and supply chain issues and all this stuff. They're constantly, it's one thing after another. So do what you can. Uh, obviously, you know, times are, are weird. Things are getting tight. But, you know, this holiday season, if you're able to get out to a couple of restaurants, Uh, Make sure you do some of your favorite spots. Always recommend, you know, local spots, chef-driven spots, chef-owned spots too as well. Maybe do a little research beforehand to make sure you're you're not going to a restaurant that supports the things that maybe you don't support too as well, because we do have some of those out there just in case. But again, appreciate everybody for listening. You know, best thing you can do is if you wind up at a new restaurant this holiday season, just uh, if it's a place that you heard about on the, the podcast here, you know, let them know that Spoon Mob sent you, your hostess, waitress, whatever, you know, help continue to spread the word. That's the best thing you can do. I've had some people reach out about like donations and stuff like that. Donate to your local food bank, you know, local organization for the homeless, different shelters, stuff like that. Do that. The money is better served there than, than with us. So, but that's it for this week. We have a little podcast trailer at the end here for a podcast that if you're interested in checking out, the podcast is called Sip, Suds, and Smokes. It's a couple guys that they just kind of have a a beverage podcast and, you know, cigars and wine and cocktails and all that stuff too as well, beers. So check them out if you're interested in kind of something like that. So we run the trailer here for them at the end, but appreciate everybody listening and we will talk to you guys next week.